Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're on the Fear Channel here at the Realm Network, and this is The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox, Episode 7. I'm your host, Pan Bandu. Happy listening. A heartbeat drums at her temple, insistent, demanding, determined. Knox is floating a feather being pulled out from a pool of darkness by a gentle breeze. Her body is waking up. She flexes her fingers. There's pain in her joints, an ache in her knees and abdomen, a dryness in her throat. An impossible weight is holding her eyelids closed, but still she sees. Three mouths, lips, teeth, and tongues speaking over each other, tempting her. Thrain, offering money, power, a way to help those in need. Kovacs promising to ease her loneliness, to end her nightmares. Klein throwing her a lifeline, a chance to understand what the Great War did to her, perhaps even to master it. Glasses clink. The sound fills the air like the calling of exotic birds. The cigarette girls walk out, their gams straining atop stilettos as they try to run. A tiny exodus that would be hilarious under different circumstances. Then, a fourth mouth, framed in lipstick the color of blood. Leclerc, singing into the silver grill of a microphone. Her arms open like wings, beckoning, a beautiful songbird with an angel's voice. Morgan? And Jiwan. Jiwan is with her, but he's been poisoned. They both have. Then, fire, chaos, madness. And for a time, the streets of New York and the trenches of the Marne are one in the same. Smoke choking her lungs. Artillery fire. Rain seeping through her ridiculous dress, chilling her skin. A young man, the crater of his missing right eye covered with a mountain of red-stained gauze. Abe's voice, offering soft assurances one moment, shouting the next. A kid on a stretcher, his legs gone. Sirens blaring, a bomb going off. The ground shaking with a passing train. Ray? Morgan, are you awake? We have to talk. She can hear breathing. A slow, heavy exhalation. 
releasing tension and worry and relief as Nox stirs and forces her eyelids to crack, wincing as light floods in. A strong hand at her back gently lifts her up, while another places a glass against her lips. She sips. The cool water relieves some of the dryness, so she drinks again, coughs, and finally turns to meet the eyes of her caregiver. Familiar, beautiful eyes beneath furrowed brows, peering out from that infuriatingly handsome face. Morgan. Hey, Ray. The words come out of her mouth in a croak, the sound of a sea creature left too long out of water. She tastes smoke at the back of her throat, leans forward and drinks again. Ray eases her back down. His steady hand against her back triggers memories she doesn't want to deal with. She looks at the glass he's holding. It's one of hers. She's home, in bed. The room is unexpectedly tidy, everything exactly where it's supposed to be. Even the Jesus candle her mom made her bring to New York, on the shelf next to the old rocking chair she picked up at the curb the day she moved in. It always makes her think of Abuela, and she takes comfort in that memory now. Good to see you open your eyes, Ray says. I've been worried sick about you. How are you feeling? Like shit, Knox admits. What, what are you doing here? Nocturne. We got reports of gunfire before somebody called the fire department. You were lying on the street delirious when I found you. Abe showed up too. We both knew you'd hate being in a hospital, so we brought you home. She won, Knox rasps. Your friend Pack is okay. Came around while Abe and I were still arguing about what to do with you. He helped us get you back to your apartment but he took off right after we got you inside. Said something about you guys being even again? Knox almost smiles. Shiwan got Leclerc's antidote. But what was she playing at? Where's Abe? I sent him home to his wife. Decided to look after you myself. Knox tenses. You didn't have to do that. That's a strange way to say thank you. Thank you. You didn't have to do that. You've been here all night? All three nights, Ray clarifies. I guess whatever you were exposed to, you must have been dosed harder than Pack. Three nights, Knox repeats, her anxiety growing. I've been out. You've been looking after me for three nights? You didn't have to do that, I know, but I did it anyway. Ray's voice is edging toward annoyance now. But he's controlling himself, like always. Can we move on, please? Move on to what? You can start by telling me what happened. What was really going on at Nocturne? Why were you there? Who fired the shots? What started the fire? Stop. Knox raises her hand to stop the barrage of questions. Didn't you get Pack's statement? As a matter of fact, I did. It was enough to make me think you were both in way over your heads before you decided to go to that club. But I want to hear it from you. She meets Ray's stare. Knox remembers looking into his eyes and finding hope. Before she realized, no one could offer her refuge from the things that made her seek it. There's no fresh pain, but a dull ache in her soul that reminds her of the scars she still bears. I... I don't remember much, 
There's something dark cradling her scant memories. The war. Ghosts reaching out for her. Two different times and places colliding inside her, pushing and pulling her in disparate directions. She wishes Ray would just let it go, allow her to get her bearings, to rest. She knows it won't happen. The canyon between his eyebrows makes that clear. She can see more questions in his mouth ready to pour out. She knows him too well. And he, her. The exhalation comes again. Ray's cheeks puff out. There are dark circles under his eyes. He hasn't slept in a while. Knox sees something from an interstitial space between the war and the events at Nocturne. Her fingers slowly caressing Ray's recently shaved jawline, his lips curling into a smile, his eyes closing, moving his face against her touch. The feelings attached to that image are vague, slightly muted by everything that's happened since, but they tug at strings she thought long snapped. Ray settles into the old rocker. Okay, you don't remember much. Let's go over the basics. Nocturne went up in flames, along with part of the Morgan Library. Someone carried you out. What were you doing in there? I... Uh, there was an event. A fundraiser. Yeah, for Thrain's mayoral campaign. That much I know. What I need to know is why it became an inferno. I need to know why you were half dead on that sidewalk. Knox pushes up on her right elbow, swings her legs down, and sits up. The room spins around her. I was working a case. Let me guess. Sivarek? Morgan, I want you to level with me. Are things getting bad again? She glares daggers at him. He pushes on. I think you should go see Dr. Klein. He could help you. He's helped a lot of people who came back from the war with, you know, nightmares and... Stop, Knox interrupts. Just... Stop. I don't need a nanny, Ray. I don't need you looking after me. We're not married anymore. Knox's words momentarily kill the conversation. She and Ray stare at each other in silence, an invisible current of memories crackling between them. The nearly 12 months they tried to make it work weren't all that bad. Not really. But Ray had never seemed able to move past them, to let them go as if that year somehow meant more than anything that happened before or since. The bond Knox and Ray had forged in France was still strong, and the work they did now that kept bringing them together only made it stronger. And to give him credit, he tried. He tried so hard sometimes. But in a moment of crisis, Ray seemed incapable of accepting a relationship with Knox that had evolved beyond the institution he held so sacred. Knox breaks the silence she created. Stop acting like you have to take care of me. I'm fine. I don't need your help. The knot between Beaumont's eyebrows loosens a bit. His face slackens. Sadness pulls his features down with its unique gravity. Knox starts regretting her words, but she's too tired to fight with herself. Too tired to do this right now. You know what? You're right. Ray's words are calm the frustration and melancholy beneath them almost imperceptible. Knox sees all of it. You shouldn't have been there, Ray adds as he stands and shrugs on his coat. I'll be at the station if you want to talk about it or remember anything important. He moves toward her bedroom door. 
and I really think you should see Dr. Klein. Klein was there, Ray, in Nocturne. That brings Ray up short. He stops and looks at Knox, waits for her to continue. I tried to warn you he might be mixed up in the Sivarek case. All right, how? Ray asks. It's complicated. But he and Thrain, and the club owner, Kovacs, they're connected through Sivarek. And? Knox says nothing. She still isn't ready to tell anyone else about the Black Sea Codex. And if what she saw in Nocturne and in her delirium was a glimpse of what she was really up against, Ray was better off not getting in too deep. He shakes his head at her silence. You can't keep playing your cards so close to the chest, Morgan. Or holding your friends at arm's length. Knox doesn't answer, and Ray walks out. He doesn't slam the door. He never would. Knox is thankful for that, at least. A headache is blossoming behind her eyes. She settles back into her pillow and shuts them against the pain. But her racing thoughts keep feeding it. Thrain. Kovacs. Klein. Nocturne. Leclerc. The Black Sea Codex. The... cult? The ritual, the fire, the war. What the hell is going on? The question still echoes when sleep finally takes her. She's awakened by the telephone. It's still dark outside. Or maybe it's dark again. She's almost afraid to find out what day it is as she gropes for the phone and barks into it. Knox. Hey, boss. It's Danny. I just heard from Ray. Glad you're alive. Wish I could say the same. Danny either doesn't hear that or chooses to ignore it. I have some information on Sivarek. Are you well enough to listen to this or do you want me to drop by later? Give me what you got. Then I'll start with the big one. Volkan Sivarek didn't exist before 1920. Knox is instantly alert. Come again? This wasn't easy to dig up, but his real name is Demir Kemal Bey. Turkish national, born in the city of Sivarek. Everything about his life before the war is a bit hazy, but it seems he was in deep with the young Turks and the rise of the three Pashas. Morgan, how much do you know about the Armenian Holocaust? Knox didn't like where this was going. Over a period of ten years, during and after the war, the Ottoman government enacted the targeted mass murder of more than a million ethnic Armenians in Turkey, along with Greeks, Assyrians, and other undesirables. Death marches, mass burnings, drownings, and medical murders were only some of the atrocities Knox had heard about. She thinks of David, an old Armenian man who used to live in her building. She thinks of the Armenian woman, who always gives her free baklava whenever Knox eats in her hole-in-the-wall coffee shop. I know enough, she tells Danny. No, you really don't. Bay was one of the architects. He planned and carried out at least a dozen ethnic purges during the war. The man was a fucking monster, Morgan. <sighs> Puñeta. How'd he escape? Near as I've been able to figure, he hoarded enough wealth during the war to buy his way to the States, set up the Sivaric identity, and adopt a public face as a philanthropist. Hell of a career change. He must have had help, Knox says. Thrain? Maybe. Thrain could have easily greased the wheels. The question is, why? Thrain didn't need Sivarek's money. 
He had plenty of his own. Knox thinks about the Codex, about that night at Nocturne, and what each of Sivarek's so-called associates had to say about the man, especially Thrain. He had an understanding of how the world truly operates that is rare in this day and age. I owe him my political career. Maybe Sivarek came here to continue what he started, Knox says. And wound up a bag of bones for his troubles? Think about it. He incriminated Thrain, Kovacs, and Klein in his death. Maybe his students outgrew him. So they're all guilty? They're all guilty of something, Knox thinks. Aloud, she says, time will tell. Good work, Danny. Thanks, boss, but I had help. Danny tells her. Pack and I have been working together, if you can believe it. He came to see me after he left your place. Between his files and mine, we put the pieces together. I told you he isn't such a bad guy. Listen, I need you to head over to Bellevue and check with Jacobs about a package I sent there. A package? Yeah, says Knox. It's important. I want you to make sure Ellen has it in a safe place. Somewhere no one can mess with it. What is it? Later. Just make sure it's safe until I need it. Will do. Where will you be? Knox spots the evening bag she took to Nocturne and reaches a decision. I think it's time I took Ray's advice. Hang on. I need to note this in your calendar. Shut up and get to the morgue. All right, all right. Anything else? Yeah, says Knox. It's good to hear your voice, kid. Same here, boss. Be careful. Knox hangs up, grabs the evening bag, and dumps its contents over her bedspread. Lipstick, Kresnik's revolver, and a crisp white business card. She'll only need two of those items for what she has to do next. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. In the place where the dead tell their stories, Dr. Ellen Jacobs is an audience of one. She reads the text of how they got here. She translates the language of their wounds. She deciphers the code of their flesh and bone and listens to the voices of their pasts. Ellen is a scientist, but she's also a diviner, a witch, a corpse whisperer, and those less empirical aspects of her job are in part what first drew her to Morgan, who seemed to hear those secrets without ever having to use a scalpel or a bone saw. That is, until Volkan Severek. For the twelfth time in as many days, she considers the impossible condition of the skeletal remains on the mortuary slab before her. The bones aren't utterly silent. They're pages from the book of the man's life. Every break, a chapter. 
every change in shape and mass a tale of illness and age. It's the moment of death when the pages become illegible. And this time, even Morgan couldn't read them. The mystery has prompted Ellen to repeatedly delay release of the remains to the deceased's executor and sole heir, one Lucienne Leclerc, who seems to be increasingly agitated about being unable to lay her late employer to rest. And she knows Leclerc's patience is wearing thin. Hello, Ellen. Ellen looks up, her mouth spreading into a smile at the sight of the young man standing in her doorway. Danny, come here and give me a hug. Danny looks at her skeptically as she slides the skeleton back into the refrigerator, then peels off her smock and gloves. Don't you need to, I don't know, shower or something first? Don't be a smartass, Ellen says, pulling him into an embrace. Seeing Danny always makes her happy. They understand each other in ways most people don't. It's good to see you, kid, Ellen says as she releases him. I suppose it's too much to hope you're here to invite me out to dinner. Danny brightens immediately. When do you get off? Not for a couple of hours yet. Danny checks his watch. Two in the morning. Let's call it breakfast, then. Deal. Ellen waits a moment before asking the inevitable question. So, what does she need this time? Did you get a package Nux sent here by any chance? And there it is. This way, she says, and leads Danny over to her desk, where she produces a small padded envelope from underneath a cluttered desk drawer. Danny takes it from her. He hefts it. Doesn't feel like much. You didn't open it? Ellen tilts her head. She addressed it to herself, Danny. Not to me. You aren't curious? Danny's expression tells her he isn't simply making sure she won't give in to temptation. She didn't tell you either, did she? Danny shakes his head. No, but she said it was important to keep it safe. Is there some place down here where nobody would find it, even by accident? Ellen sighs. This isn't the first time Morgan has sent something to the morgue for safekeeping, so she shouldn't be surprised. She just wishes Knox had come by to ask her in person, but at least she gets to spend time with Danny. She moves back to the wall of storage units and opens the middle door on the far end. The male cadaver she slides out is a ghastly shade of gray, even by Ellen's standards, but Danny holds his ground admirably. Noticing his perplexed reaction, she says, Unless we need to call in a repairman, this is as safe as it gets. Danny looks impressed. But before he can hand back the envelope, Ellen's phone rings. Give me a minute. I need to get this. She heads back to her desk and picks up. As she expected, it's her boss, complaining that Leclerc is still hounding him, demanding to know why she hasn't released the Sivarek remains yet. Out of the corner of her eye, she sees Danny still standing by the refrigerators, studying the envelope. Ellen turns away and is just launching into her latest stalling tactic, when she hears the sound of tearing paper. Behind the wheel, Abe is a shark. Smooth, aggressive, fast, in control. Knox watches the city go by through the passenger side window, Four years after the crash, the chasm between the haves and the have-nots is nowhere closer to narrowing. Old tenements bow to new skyscrapers, 
Shiny shoes sidestep tattered boots. Clean faces frown at extended hands and pleading roomy eyes. Rich and poor dance to very different beats on the same sidewalks. Gray buildings and gray lives, blurring into a single vast organism. It's impossible to tell where the people end and the city begins. Abe's thick fingers wrap and rewrap themselves around the steering wheel. The veins in his forearms slide over his tightening tendons. His blocky, misshapen knuckles, a legacy of his boxing days, remind Knox of bricks. Sometimes, she finds it hard to reconcile the damage they're capable of with the gentleness she's known from them for most of her life. It's good to have Abe on her side. They turn south, onto Fifth. Up ahead, the marble palace of the New York Public Library looms. Even at night, the place is a weird white oasis in the center of Midtown. Abe veers to the right, damn the signal light, and glides to a stop. Knox opens her door. You want me to hang around for a bit, kid? Abe asks. Not sure how long I'm going to be. I can hop a train home. Why don't you take the rest of the night off? Not a chance. Take your time. I got a stop to make anyway. Abe cranes his head to take an appreciative gander at the library. Try not to set this one on fire, will ya? Danny likes this place. So you're a comedian now? That's what Mrs. Moskowitz keeps telling me. She has the patience of a saint. She keeps telling me that too. I'll swing by in a couple of hours. Stay safe. He adds, his tone slipping into that fatherly territory he always goes to without realizing it. Knox swings the door closed. As Abe pulls away from the curb, someone slams on their brakes and leans into their horn. Abe thrusts his left hand out the window and raises his middle finger at the other driver as he speeds away. Knox shakes her head and turns to face the library. It should be closed at this hour, but she called ahead. The man inside is waiting for her. The two stone lions flanking the stairway watch her as she ascends. Traffic's been getting worse in recent years, even during the small hours Morgan likes to keep. But Abe still enjoys driving around. Cars aren't complicated. He steps on the gas, the cab roars and lurches forward. Action and reaction. Cause and effect. Simple. Abe wishes more things in life were that way. Heading up the east side, Abe thinks about Morgan, always getting into trouble. Nah, that ain't right. It's the other way around. Trouble is always finding her. She's a good kid, but she's a magnet for trouble. That business at Nocturne was a close shave, even by Morgan's standards. Abe shakes it off. She'll be fine. He'll pick her up in a couple hours, and that'll be that. The library's a safe place. Killers don't meet their victims at the goddamn library. Or do they? At 59th Street, he turns right toward the Queensboro Bridge. He prefers the upper deck. Even driving away from Manhattan, he enjoys the view of its ragged skyline in the rear view. Tonight it makes him think of serrated teeth waiting to tear the sky to shreds. The Teamsters Union is housed in an unassuming red brick building that sits on a gentle slope. Abe quickly parks his cab on a side street and walks two blocks south and a block west to the entrance. Hanging out outside the building 
are Tommy, Jules, and Frankie. Abe knows he won't make it into the building. Once those guys start flapping their gums, it's all over. The thought puts a smile on his face. Well, look what the cat dragged in. Jules is a beast of a man, but his voice doesn't reflect that. He's six foot five, and every inch of his frame is packed with fat and muscle. He's wearing a brown button-down shirt, trusting the middle buttons way too much. His prodigious gut looks ready to explode out of his shirt and slap the sidewalk. Good to see the diet is working, Jules, says Abe. Abe understands what the Teamsters Union is for and what being a part of it does for him and men like him across the country. But his visits here are about something else, camaraderie. These men come from similar backgrounds. None of them was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Their hands are calloused from hard work. They enjoy a drink to smooth out life's edges. And they love messing with each other. Diets are for old, fat bastards like you, Moskowitz, Jules fires back. Young guy like me don't need no stinking diet, you get me? This thing you see right here is a firebox for a love machine. He draws circles on his belly for emphasis. Everyone laughs. Jules' laughter morphs into a phlegmy cough. You all right there, Jules? Asks Abe. He nods, still coughing, his eyes bloodshot. If there's one thing Abe hates, it's the inexorable passage of time. It's punishing, scary, unforgiving. He sees himself in the mirror every day, but has to look hard and concentrate to spot the differences between the previous versions of himself and the one he sees now. Seeing how time beats up his friends is easier. Jules's perpetual cough is worrisome. The map of red lines in his nose and cheeks aren't a sign of perfect health either. The way Tommy's limp gets worse and worse whenever it's cold promises a cane in a few years. The dark bags hanging under Frankie's big brown eyes say he needs rest. Abe wonders what they see when they look at him. What's left behind and obvious from his boxing years? What signs they read in his graying hair, in the deepening lines around his mouth. Hey, it's good to see you, Abe, Frankie says as Jules's cough subsides. You ain't been around much. All good with you and the missus? Frankie is a short, thick Puerto Rican with an accent. Black hair sprouts from just below his eyes and covers his entire face. More than a beard, it looks like he's wearing a black mask with a few white threads in it. He drives a taxi half the night. In the mornings, he helps his uncle run a small bakery. He never sleeps. Not a day goes by that he doesn't mention missing the beach. Abe always asks about his two sons. Frankie's wife died of Spanish flu when the boys were six and nine, but Frankie never remarried. Always too busy working. Oh, good, Frankie. How are the boys? Asks Abe. Them two knuckleheads is all right, I guess. Big Tito doesn't come around much. He met a girl, una mulata from Brooklyn. He's in love. You know how pretty girls can become more important than anything else if they smile at you the right way, hermano. You have a fucking rug on your face, Frankie, Tommy says. I'd ignore your ass even if the gal smiling at me had three teeth in her mouth, a mustache, and an eye patch. Tommy is a muscular Italian who always looks like he's mad. Talks like it, too. His voice is abrasive, like acid. The funny thing is, he's also the most emotional of them. The first to come out swinging if he thinks one of his friends is in trouble. Dark green curlicues, 
fading women with crooked smiles. A few crosses, an ace of spades, and a collection of grinning skulls cover his arms. All prisoning. He did time for putting a man who smacked his sister in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Chuckles erupt from everyone, including Frankie. Shut the hell up, Tommy, says Frankie. I was answering the men's question. I swear your mother was a trash can with them manners you have. Frankie looks back at Abe. As I was saying, Big Tito don't come around much. Frankie Jr. drops by from time to time. He's working at the docks. Boy don't like school. I can't blame him, you know. Glad to hear they're doing okay, Frankie, Abe says. Tommy lifts his chin at Abe. How you been? Life ain't hard when you're young and good-looking. But you wouldn't know anything about that, responds Abe. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of knowing, you know anything about that fire last night? Asks Tommy. I know nothing about nothing. Why? Word gets around, Tommy says. You tend to know things somehow, which is impressive for a man who looks like a big dumb ape. That never kept your mother from... Gents! Jules says loudly. An old woman walks by, wrapped in a black scarf. The men look at their shoes, mumble good day. They look like giant kids caught with their hand in the cookie jar for a few seconds. They resume their conversation as soon as the woman turns the corner. Hey, Jules, tell Abe about that fella you picked up a few nights ago, Tommy says. You know how he likes that weird stuff, huh? What fella? Jules here picked up a devil or something, Frankie says a smile making his beard wiggle. There's not much to tell, says Jules. Sure wasn't no demon. At least I don't think so. <laughs> nah, I was down in the village. Late. This fellow waved me down. He was wearing more black than a priest. Figured I'd pick up one more lost soul before I head home, right? I pulled over and he got in. Gave me an address uptown. He sat there for a minute before the stench of him got to me. Man, he smelled like he'd heard bathing is bad for your skin or something. His clothes looked okay, so the smell caught me by surprise, right? Anyway, he started breathing all weird. I figured he was cleaning his rifle or something. You know, so I looked at him in the rearview mirror. If he was doing the thing, I was gonna stop the cab, yank him out, and wipe the damn sidewalk with his sick ass, right? Turns out his hands wasn't moving. Not at all. I looked at his face, and his damn eyeballs were all black. Not just the middle. The whole thing. Black as a puddle of oil at midnight. Never seen nothing like it before. He kept breathing like there was a bird caught in his throat. Made me uncomfortable. I kept driving and dropped him off at the Morgan Library. Drove home with the windows down. The smell of him was so strong. Tell him the best part, Frankie urges. It was the same night the fire started. Abe manages to keep his face even, but Tommy is looking at him for answers. What do you think Jewel saw, Abe? No idea, Abe says. This city is weird like that. Keeps getting worse. We all need to keep our eyes open and be careful. Nods all around. Tommy spits. I get some weird guy like that in my cab? He's going to be picking up his teeth from the sidewalk. Yeah? Well, you better pick your fights, Jules warns. You can't go getting your knuckles all bloody like that no more. Kids these days don't know nothing about that. They get itchy and plug you. No one uses their hands anymore. Everyone's packing heat. I don't blame them, says Frankie. 
Jobs are harder to come by these days. Todo está difícil. I see the kids on my block. They make the right connection and can soon buy a couple suits and give their mama some money, you know? I don't blame them. This damn economy, it pushes good people to do bad things. It didn't push us to do bad things, says Tommy. We worked like mules to put food on the table, didn't we? Hell, we still do. It's a thing with this new generation, not this crap economy. It was different times, Tommy, replies Frankie. There were jobs to be had. Now, there's none. Speaking of jobs, what happened to tall Jake? He was always asking around for jobs. Haven't seen his face in a long while, Abe says. He left the city, says Jules. Got in with some goons by the docks. It went bad. They threatened him. He got scared. Last I heard, he was a stool pigeon, and the feds were going to hide him somewhere. Abe looks at his watch and realizes two hours have come and gone. I gotta go, gentlemen. Wish I could say it was a pleasure talking to a bunch of old farts. But Mrs. Moskowitz ain't keen on me lying. Take it easy, Grandpa, says Frankie. Give our regards to the wife, you big ape, grumbles Tommy. Come around more often, Abe, adds Jules. Someone has to keep this city running and it won't be you, so stop pretending you're too busy to come see your people, yeah? I'll definitely see you. You're hard to miss, Jules, Abe says, walking away. The men hurl insults at him until he rounds the corner. As he nears his cab, Abe sees a girl sitting on the curb in front of it. Her head is bent as if she's crying. He speeds toward her. Hey, kid, you okay? By the time he feels the shadow behind him, it's too late. I'm glad you decided to take me up on my offer, Miss Knox, Klein says as he pours tea. His hands are delicate, his fingers long and thin. They sit facing each other in two high-backed leather chairs, the kind you find in gentlemen's clubs, as pricey as they are soft. It's like sitting on a cloud. Particularly after that unfortunate incident at the club. I was relieved to learn that you escaped. I understand there were several fatalities. She murmurs her thanks as she accepts the proffered teacup. If it keeps Klein talking, Knox is happy to play along for now. It was pretty bad, she acknowledges. But I don't remember seeing you when the gunfire started. Perhaps that's because I left the party shortly after we spoke, Klein explains. I'm afraid I missed all the excitement. Tell me, do you know if they caught the shooter? I understand he set fire to the place as well. Not that I've heard, Knox says. He likely got away in all the confusion, but I expect the police are still investigating. She sets the cup down on the small cherry wood table holding the tea set without sipping. I appreciate your willingness to see me on short notice and at such an odd hour. It's quite all right. I'm something of a night owl myself. Fortunately, my position affords me considerable latitude in accessing these facilities. She looks around the surprisingly small office. I understand you used to work for the government. Weapons research? Officially, I still do. He waves a lazy index finger toward the door behind his chair. I conduct most of my research in my laboratory. 
Enough small talk, Knox thinks. Dr. Klein, you said you could help me with my affliction, that you'd treated others for it. I can, he assures her, and I have. How? By offering clarity. By helping you to understand that what you've been experiencing is not an affliction at all. It is a gift. A gift, Knox repeats, while Klein calmly sips his tea. A gift? I can't sleep at night. I don't dream. I hallucinate. My life is a series of blood-soaked crime scenes. And you want me to see that as a gift? Klein smiles patiently, as if she were a child. And Knox fights the unhelpful impulse to punch his teeth in. Many returned from the Great War, physically or emotionally scarred. Maimed in body and in mind. They left pieces of themselves behind. But a few, a very special few, brought something back with them. Knox narrows her eyes. Brought something back? Isn't that the truth you've been denying these past 14 years? Isn't that what brought you here tonight? Indulge me, Miss Knox. How did your journey to this moment begin? Knox is tempted to string the creepy bastard along indefinitely. That had been the plan, anyway. To convince Klein he'd earned her trust, get him to lower his guard in return, and to let her into his confidence, while he was doing the same to her. But something has shifted. After all the years of keeping her secrets behind a wall, she can feel cracks forming. Klein can see what's on the other side, and Knox suddenly finds herself grasping at a strand of hope that things might be better if she just stops pushing back and lets the dam burst. If she shares her truth with Klein. In 1918, I was a battlefield nurse, attached to the 369th Infantry Regiment, Knox begins. They called themselves the Rattlers. To the French who fought alongside them, they were the Men of Bronze. But after facing them in combat, the Germans started calling them the Hellfighters, and that was the name that stuck. I watched those men and boys torn apart by artillery, impaled by bayonets, and seared by mustard gas. I treated them as best I could, but I couldn't save everyone. Too many went home with wounds that would never heal. Too many didn't go home at all. But not you, Klein says quietly. Unlike your comrades in arms, you came back with much more. Knox nods, and the cracks widen. Something happened to me while I was over there. When the carnage was at its worst, I could feel something opening, like a tear in the world. As if something was trying to get in, offers Klein. Knox stares at him. He knows. He really does know what this is. Ever since then, I've been seeing things, hearing things, feeling things. Dark, terrible things that aren't real, but that I can't even talk about without risking a straitjacket. And they compel me drive me to witness one horror after another. I'm so fucking tired of fighting it. Fourteen years after the war, and it's only getting worse. Me, the city, the world. It's like we're all being twisted from the outside in, 
and I honestly don't know how to hold it back anymore. Klein leans forward, his pale blue eyes boring into her, and lays one of his narrow, delicate hands over hers. You don't have to. She stares at his hand. She knows she should recoil from it, but she doesn't. Can you really help me? Yes, he tells her. Yes, I believe I can. He withdraws his hand and leans back. Her skin feels strange where he touched her. You aren't experiencing symptoms of a disordered mind, Miss Knox. You are in touch with something deeper than most people ever experience. For those like you, the Great War opened their minds to a presence that is ordinarily unseen and unknowable. For some, it is a direct result of witnessing extreme violence. For others, it comes from the guilt stemming from the acts they committed. Before emigrating to the United States, I treated a score of such people from all over Europe. But I soon learned that nowhere are they clustered as densely as they are in New York City. So I brought my studies of the phenomenon here. Something is happening to Klein's face. It's blurring, shifting, his pale eyes leaving blue trails in the air as they move. How do I make it stop? Knox pleads. You cannot, Klein says. You can only accept it. That's the key. You've spent the last 14 years fighting what you don't understand, and that alone is the source of your torment. But if you surrender to it, I promise you that not only will the pain end, you will find greater belonging than you've ever known. You are not cursed, Miss Knox. You are one of the blessed. Klein's shadow is sprouting tentacles. They're slithering off his chair, spreading over the walls. Knox is growing hot, her breathing more labored. Close your eyes. Count to ten. The Odessa Club, she grates. Siverek. The Black Sea Codex. Klein nods. Yes, we are all touched in much the same way, but we are not the first. The Black Sea Codex contains the wisdom of those who, in centuries past, learned to recognize the unknowable, as you soon will. All you need to do is stop fighting. Knox rises from her chair, staggers. Klein is instantly on his feet, steadying her, steering her toward the door behind his chair. Easy, he says soothingly. You're almost home, Miss Knox. Let me help you the rest of the way. He opens the door to reveal a room much larger than the small outer office. It looks like a warehouse, a laboratory, and an artist's studio rolled into one. On the back wall are strange metal frameworks. Tesla coils? The purpose of which Knox can't begin to fathom. Behind Klein are tall shelves filled with old books. A metal work table cluttered with Bunsen burners and glass receptacles of every shape and size, bubbling and smoking. And two gigantic tubes holding human cadavers suspended in formaldehyde. Corpses with black eyes. Imagine it, he says, closer to her ear. A new world, 
opening up in front of you. The ability to see beyond the veil. You'd no longer need your eyes to see or your ears to hear. With his free hand, he throws a switch mounted on the wall, and the Tesla coils crackle to life. Knox hears a voice coming from somewhere behind her. Then a shadowy figure takes shape between the coils, moving like thick smoke before it dissolves into nothingness. There is a way to realign the way you think, Miss Knox, says Klein. I can help you tune into what you are seeing. I can help you understand the events around you. A creature scurries across the wall opposite the Tesla coils. It resembles a salamander, but Knox can see the wall through its translucent body. The sound of the voice fades in and out. Klein squeezes her upper arm. Count to ten. Count to ten. Count to ten. Before Klein realizes what's happening, Kresnik's revolver is cocked and pressed against his temple. Get your fucking hand off me, now! Unruffled, Klein complies. He spreads his hands and slowly turns to face Knox. She steps back and aims between his eyes. Where are you going with this, Miss Knox? Do you intend to kill me for offering you help? I assure you, neither the local police nor your government will consider that anything less than murder. Knox has to fight not to squeeze the trigger. You're making it tempting just the same, you smug son of a bitch. She starts backing out of the laboratory. Klein offers her a parting smile. You know where to find me. It sounds more like a threat than an invitation. Knox leaves the library at a run. Abe's cab is waiting at the curb. She races down the steps, climbs into the back seat, and slams the door. Abe doesn't wait for her to tell him where to go. The taxi peels away from the curb, tires screaming and smoking. The car keeps accelerating as it weaves through the traffic on 5th, ignoring red lights. She's about to ask Abe what the hell has gotten into him when she realizes he isn't the one behind the wheel. The driver meets her shocked stare in the rear view. There's a dark hole where one of his eyes ought to be, and that entire half of his face is a single badly healed mass of scar tissue. John Craddock, alive and well, gives her a curt nod. Knox. Knox has no idea what to say for a second. How the hell can he be alive? Where's Abe? It finally occurs to her to ask. Safe, growls Craddock. Knox considers drawing her revolver, but she quickly realizes it would be an empty threat. At the speed Craddock's driving, a bullet would kill them both. Craddock must have counted on her putting that together. So she tries a different tack. Where are we going? Craddock strains to enunciate through his damaged mouth, but Knox has no trouble hearing the words. We have work to do. You're listening to Fear, The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away.
Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox is a Realm Original production, written by K. Arsenault Rivera, Brooke Bolander, Gabino Iglesias, and Sunny Moraine. Performed by Pilar Uribe. Produced by Marco Palmieri. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Audio production, editing, sound design, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Fear is produced by Mary Osadolihi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Pun Bandu. Audio editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolihi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Fear by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>